Welcome to Season 5 of The Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders from Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week, the seventh day of October, and markets have been on a wild ride. We go up 350 points, we go down 350 points, and then we do the same thing in reverse the next day. The Treasury has been all over the place, but not much higher than 750, um, than 155, and then we kind of come back below 150 briefly. It seems to be looking stable. The dollar has been on a tear. Whoa, got to hear what Jim Urio, our first guest, thinks about the dollar, these interest rates. Oh, and by the way, don't forget cyber currency. It's been on a roll here, too, for the past week. It's up a bunch. It it pulled back a bit, but uh, pretty much all of them have been on a roll. And um, gold isn't showing a great deal of fear in the world of politics. As we follow Wall Street, Washington and the world, Washington has been controlling Wall Street probably more than most anything else. They came to a short term kick the can down the road deal last night. And we now are going to extend this debt ceiling limit until sometime in December when we're going to go through this whole histrionic process again. And then they'll likely kick it down the road into sometime into 2022 when it might actually become an election issue for the 2022 elections. If people start talking about it, at least the voters could decide something because these people in Washington can't seem to do anything. We're going to go to Marcus first. Jim Uriel is director of TJM Institutional Services. He is the voice of the Chicago Exchange for many years. Uh, you want to learn something? Listen to Yurio, one of our great friends on the Farcast. Welcome back, Jim. Thank you, Michael. Lots going on. Help us make sense of it. Okay. Well, the the way the market traded over the last month, we, there's a couple things you have to consider, and then all of them are valid points, I think, is that we have been grinding to all-time highs for a long, long time. So we were due for a correction. We tend to look for a reason to have a correction, and we did. Now, the, the debt ceiling and potential default, that was a pretty damn good reason. I hope I can say that on the show. I'm sorry about that. Um, I, that was a pretty good reason, and we, that's one of the reasons we were trading trading sideways to south for the last you know couple months. Now that it appears to be gone, and again, what we were pricing over the last few weeks is, are they dumb enough to do something cataclysmic and the market is was saying very clearly probably not but it's not 100 percent sure so now they kick can down the road which is what they're good at the market has other things to concentrate on i don't think this corrective phase is over i wanted seven to eight percent and i still do i won't think it's over until we can trade the sp back above 44.80 and settle there the 100 points higher than where we are now right now i think this is noise and remember sometimes when we're in good solid corrections, sometimes the most violent moves are the up moves to try to convince people that it's all over. I don't think it's a good correction until people stop thinking it's a correction. So unfortunately, I still think it has some downside. Does that make sense? You you don't think there's enough fear at this point, right? Exactly. I don't see fear and I don't see enough capitulation. I don't see enough people saying, forget about it. This market's going going to hell and then throwing out of their positions. I haven't seen that yet, I don't think. Everybody was saying right along, Jim, that don't worry about this debt ceiling. They're never going to let the debt ceiling happen. And it's and just don't worry about it. That complacency worried me a whole lot. So has the complacency still over Evergrande. I don't think that one has gone away, uh, maybe, but I don't think so. I'm still worried about the ripple effects of a lot of that debt around the world. I mean, default is an ugly word, and they've got a lot of debt around the world. So I kind of tend to agree with you. The thing that I'm concerned about, though, or, or, or that, that fights that wall of worry is four and a half trillion dollars in money market funds, four and a half trillion in money market funds ready to pounce on every one of these things. How do we actually get a real correction, Jim, when you've got that much money on the sidelines? Here's where I think here's what I think is going to happen for the real correction. We've seen that the Nasdaq that's been the leader for the last year and a half really, really hates when rates go up. You mentioned the 10 year earlier. Now, the 10 year in in September moved from one point three to one point five five high. And since then has been kind of just moving around back between one forty eight and one fifty five. Every time there's been a significant move out of the range to the upside in rates, the Nasdaq suffers. And again, for people, most people who are listening to this know this, but you know, most Wall Street analysts use that discounted cash flow model. Growth stocks are much more sensitive to uh, to rates. I'm not sure 
how, how real that story is or how just the market thinks that's what's going to happen and tries to get ahead of things. But I think if the market, go, if the 10-year yield goes above, like, let's say 1.56, the NASDAQ heads lower. That's going to be the final leg of the correction, in my opinion, because I believe while we're doing that, we'll be changing leadership from the NASDAQ to the Russell and the Russell will held up better. But you know, changing leadership can be an, you know, an inelegant sort of process at times. I think that's what leads the last leg of the correction. And then I'm fine with it. Explain that last part. It will change from the NASDAQ to the Russell. The Russell what? The Russell is a company that keep, keeps different indices and tracks as, as a bunch of different indices. There's a Russell 1000 growth, Russell 1000 value. There are a bunch of mid cap. Which one are you talking about? I was talking about the Russell. I thought it was the Russell 2000, the futures, the RTY, the one that I okay. trade. The one but that anyway, you trade. So, the one that I trade. <laughs> the one anyway, that you trade. Of course, that's the yeah, one you're exactly. talk So you about. guys, yeah. Was, yeah, but the CME product. Um, the, the point I'm trying to make is that from the beginning, from March 23rd, 2020, which was the day of the mar stock market lows uh, after the pandemic, the day that the Fed promised QE to infinity, and then the, the NASDAQ was the unbelievable leader for the whole way up for two reasons. One, they love low rates. Two, the work from home thing and everything was becoming digitized. In moments where it seems like we're coming out of the pandemic and coming back to a strong economy, the NASDAQ right. tends to go lower. And the domestic nature, at least the way it's viewed by the trading world of the Russell, the Russell is viewed as more you know, more specific to, to uh, regular organic growth and not just growth in the digital world. And we kind of switch back. And I is think it, is, is the Russell 2000 that you trade? It's an all cap all. It's not value or growth. It's just a, it's almost a bigger S&P 500. Exactly. But most people view it as the smaller caps and the more domestic names. Again, Small, mm -hmm. in the trading world, I don't care what the actual real story is, because after a while you you see what people what you know, what people like. Like, for instance, just to make a, a metaphor for it, when when oil prices go up or coffee prices go up, Starbucks stocks tends to um, track coffee prices. It's stupid because that means Starbucks input prices are going to be higher, but it doesn't That's matter. Right. The market the market has ring fenced those two together and they trade together. So to me, those relationships are more important than the actual story. So I don't mean to sound cavalier to the listeners like, oh, he doesn't even know what's in the Russell. I just want to make underscore the point that I don't really care what's in the Russell. I care about how it trades and it trades like the domestic trade, whereas the NASDAQ trades as the work from home forever, global technology and information trades. Does that make sense? It makes great sense. As, uh, but I think our listeners have to keep in mind that you uh, are a trader. And, right. uh, and that's different from what you do in your investment portfolio. So Jim's talking about what he's doing in a trade in a short term market. He's looking for an entry point. He's looking for an exit point. At the same time, when he enters a trade, he's already thinking about his exit, exit and he already has a loss, some sort of a stop loss in place. Do you not, Jim? I mean, you don't put no, it in that, an order, but I mean. No, that's for sure. I, I'm mostly an options trader. I I, I day trade. I'm not the world's greatest day trade. I like time frames of between like two weeks and two months. And I also like long-term thesis and investment stuff too. And I, I have a couple of portfolios that I manage that way. But yeah, so so I like to use options. I like to define my risk. But when I do day trade, I have a stop and a target right away, just like you said. And so he's going to limit his losses. And what, what you're also hearing from a Jim Urio, and you're, he, you can hear this from pretty much any experienced money manager who's worth a damn at what we do. And there are not as many of them out there as you think. So and Urio is one of them worth a damn at what he does. They all have a very clear discipline that they stick to. And they can tell you what their discipline is ahead of time. They don't say, I have a feeling. They don't say, I just saw something that made me feel funny uh, or got me worried today in the markets. They have a discipline. They know why they're in, why they're out, and they keep their emotions out of it. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the key. And I bring it up because if you're feeling emotional, and right now, folks, you're probably feeling more emotional than you've felt in the past year when it comes to your investments, right? When it comes to your investments, because things have been very volatile. And as Jim says, they might go lower. He kind of hopes that they do. Why do you hope that they go lower, Jim? Because when you got to blow the froth us sometimes you got to trim the hedges to get a healthy market you should be nervous when people don't respect risk when uh, when the vix is low when uh, it just keeps grinding higher that's when i get most nervous and most emotional and you mentioned emotions and everyone like everybody who trades acts like oh i've completely mastered my emotions i'll be here to tell you i have not it is a fight every day and one of the reasons i use options for my trade is because i can define exactly what my risks are going in and then know what I could potentially lose, what I could potentially make, 
and be able to sleep at night. I'm very, very hedged. I'm very much of a risk mitigator. So it's a constant battle. But, um, you know, it's an interesting one. I have the same battle. And I, uh, as much as I think I have, I recognize my emotions, certainly when they're coming into play. And yes, I fight them actively. And the other thing that helps is having a team. So we have an investment team and we talk about these things before we'll make a trade. And one of the questions we always ask is, is this according to our discipline? Are we sticking to our discipline in this particular decision? And that's kept us in different stocks and investments and kept us from making others. Um, so uh, I love what you said, though. You should be nervous when people don't respect risk. Ladies and gentlemen, the best thing that I've heard out of anybody in a long time, I don't even know if he knew he said it, but Jim, those are words to live by. So tell us, because we are I can't believe it, we're coming to the end of our time here. So tell us, uh, Fred and Ethel are always thinking, they're hearing all of this uh, noise out of Washington. Uh, the, the president says pension plans can be wiped out. Janet Yellen says this could be disastrous. These are uh, words akin to yelling fire in the movie theater here. And we've only gotten this kicked down the road for another couple of months. So we'll probably hear the same words again in two months. Don't be surprised, folks. What do you tell Fred and Ethel in here about what they should be doing and thinking? Well, I'll put it put on my investment cap and I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm not selling out of any medium or long term positions at this point in time. I when if, if I if this rally lasts a few days and volatility goes a little lower, I may buy some options to protect some positions. But I am I'm fine with the market medium term and long term. I think that there's a lot of things that are going well. I do think, you know, you, you look at this pandemic. And I know we haven't mentioned it at all. But the, the numbers are getting better. Goldman came out, I think it was Goldman came out yesterday and said yes. you know, their analysis seems like the Delta wave is over. So now you know, we're in an, another gully and the hope has got to be that we're going to start uh, exploding from an economic standpoint, despite the fact that it seems like the government is fighting against that all the time. But Goldman also said the numbers in the ADP were good yesterday because finally, finally, those unemployment benefits are, are starting to wane and people are being forced to go back to work, which should have happened six months ago. The fact that it wasn't was almost criminal, in my opinion. How worried are you about inflation? Very. I think that the move that crude made above, you know, the five-year highs and it's yeah. consolidating there now, wow. to me, is something I'm watching. That's probably one of the things I'm focused on the most. Natural gas, gas prices have almost, you know, tripled, quadrupled in the last uh, year. This is, it's getting weird. And remember, you know, I want people to understand that this was kind of engineered. They chose just so desperately wanted inflation. If you hear some of those Fed guys talk over the last 10 years, they were so, so um, frustrated that they couldn't spur on a little bit of inflation. Well, be careful what you wish for, because here we are. But I'm very worried about it. Well, I've said for some time, and I disagree with Mohammed El Aryan right now, too, which is something I don't say very frequently. I got to tell you, because mm -hmm. this is one of the most brilliant guys in, on Wall Street. Mohammed says we don't have a demand problem. We have a supply problem. And I, I, I agree with that in the short term, but the longer term, all of this monetary and fiscal easing has not created demand. The middle class hasn't had more wages to go out and buy and spend. They haven't seen wage inflation. We're seeing a little bit of it. But as we see it, it's not keeping up with the real cost inflation. So wages go up 10% and costs go up 12%. The guy who's getting the wages feels a little bit bigger, better because his check's bigger, but he still can't afford a better lifestyle at all. And so the frustration continues and GDP doesn't grow at that rate. You just adjust for the inflation and you're back at that, you know, run rate of 2% or two and a half, 2% inflation. I think we get back there. No doubt. I, I think uh, Mohammed al is wrong too, but I will give him that. I think the supply disruptions are a big, huge part of it, but the demand portion of it is, is, is not quite equally as important, but close. And demand can be broken down into two things. There's genuine organic demand that's happened as people have come out of their basements. You should see the restaurant industry in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago. It's amazing. There's people lined out the door and the demand for labor is real. Every restaurateur I talk to, including myself, has a difficult time getting people to come back to work. So demand is there. Part of it's organic and part of it is the inorganic government fuel demand. And this, not just in our country, but globally, the government has thrown so much money at this to keep demand from falling off a cliff. It's no wonder it is not rocket science. If you decrease supply and increase demand at the same time, what's going to happen? Gosh, inflation. Let's see it. 
and we are seeing it. And we hope that they, as Jim says, know what they uh, really wanted here, that they this is what they asked for. We hope they're happy that they've got it. And when you see these people coming back to these restaurants, it is a sign of that pent up demand. It's also a recognition of quality when you see them lined up outside of Brant's of Palantine, because <laughs> this is this is the best burger in the world. And if you want to get out and you're ready to stretch after having stayed inside for over a year, you couldn't start at a better place than Brant's of Palantine. Jim Urio is a director of IJM Institutional in Chicago. He is the voice of the Chicago Exchange. Thank you so much for being with us, Jim. Thank you, brother. I'll see you. See you. We're going to be back with Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, the senior political analyst on the Farcast. Boy, has Dan has, a, has had a busy week. We're going to be right back. Please stay with us. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We're glad you could join us this week on the Farcast. Now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Terrific segment there with Jim Urio from the Chicago Exchange. His positions as a trader and an investor, there was a lot of little to learn in that particular segment. Uh, we're going to go to Dan Mahaffey now and then coming up Liz Young in segment three. Dan Mahaffey uh, is the senior policy strategist, uh, vice president, senior vice president at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and the senior political analyst on the forecast. Now in season five, if you can believe it, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, Dan. Good morning, Michael. Good to be back as always. Thank you. Thank you for joining us early this morning out in Colorado. Out in Colorado. That's the way they say it, isn't it? Rado? Colorado? Well, at least in the western Kansas part of Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, Dan uh, we, we had Congress uh, back off from the cliff last night, and I was struck with two uh, separate quotations. I'm going to read them first. One from Elizabeth Warren, uh, the second from Donald Trump. And uh, the first part of these quotations, it sounds like Senator Warren and President Trump agree with each other. Now, I, that doesn't happen very often. So listen here. Senator Warren says, McConnell caved. And now we're going to spend our time doing childcare, healthcare, and fighting climate change. President Trump said, Looks like Mitch McConnell is folding to the Democrats again. He's got all of the cards with the debt ceiling. It's time to play the hand. Don't let them destroy our country. So first part of those statements sounded like they'd agreed. They sound like they may diverge on the second part of those statements. And yet we have now just kicked the can down the road on this debt ceiling yeah. issue, Dan, that is a very difficult issue if reached. Congress playing with fire said we're not going to do it. What did you make of what happened in Washington? And as you said, we were going to be, you said for a while on the forecast, it's going to be December before any of this gets handled. It looks like Mahaffey was right again. It's why he's here, folks. Dan? Uh, Michael, yeah, no, it's the, as you described it, one, we've got Mitch McConnell, the blinked narrative. Mitch McConnell blinked. You've got Trump and Elizabeth Warren agreeing on something. I, I hear that this morning, and I worry I sampled too many of the local Colorado products uh, last night, but that's that's not the case. They're both actually saying that McConnell did cave on this, but I think everyone caved in some ways. The Democrats have pushed back their timeline uh, to get their deals through. Uh, at the same time, the Republicans, they, they don't have this leverage that they thought they had on the debt ceiling. 
Um, one is, I think we, we certainly have the narrative uh, that's coming out that basically as Democrats were getting closer and closer to the deadline, uh, the, the thought of changing the filibuster became closer and closer. And that for Mitch McConnell was a, was a, a red line he could not cross. So there was a deal that had to be made there. And then I think everyone was also blinking because the, the concept of this default and moving closer and closer to that without any kind of way out uh, was making the adults in the room, let's say, more and more nervous. You know, this notion of a debt limit is something that Congress created in the first place. This isn't like we've got an asteroid headed to the Earth and they've got to save us from everything. This is not an external threat. This is a threat of their own creation. And they do this every time we come to this point. They just raise the damn thing after they go and face each other. Uh, after the guns, after the and we talked about the Kabuki, the Histronics, the. Uh, everything that they, that they do this as part of the annual uh, political mating dance. I don't know what else you want to we want to call it. And, it, and, it, and, it is. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and after, you know, after and guess this, what? We all get to do it again nonsense. at the holidays. I, we do it again at the holidays. And after this nonsensical fight is over with over this issue that they have created and perpetuated, we as the American voter are supposed to be grateful when our senators and congressmen come back into our districts and say, look what I did for you. I made sure we didn't hit that debt ceiling. You dumb bastards, get rid of the damn thing or abide by it and quit running up all of this damn debt. We've got over $30 trillion of debt. All you all want to talk about is spending more money and you are basically mortgaging the lives of our grandchildren to this country who may not enjoy the quality of life that we ourselves are enjoying as a result of the debt we're spending today and leaving for them tomorrow. It just infuriates me, Dan. I don't mean to sound like one of these, you know, radio hack jobs, but boy, this one, I, I don't know how to see this clearly without seeing red. We've talked about this countless times, how both parties whistle past the graveyard on spending and debt that, you know, the 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 hypocrisy of each party suddenly finding their 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 fiscal certitude once the opposition is in place uh you know that again that's part of this this again uselessness of the debt ceiling that we've talked about uh it's pushed again to the holidays i think it gets rolled into the other infrastructure deal this is going to you know be another big package altogether before the end of the year a question is, do, do they need to accelerate it a little faster to to shore up, as we've talked about, the important race in Virginia that that remains close? So, the, you know, That's Democrats the governor's, need to, governor's race in Virginia, governor's race, the gubernatorial race in Virginia. So you need to have a uh, some kind of package or momentum before then. Uh, but beyond that, uh, no, this uh, I think they, they move this all together. Um, and I think you actually get at it, Michael. And it was in Greg Valliere's note as well. Maybe this needs to go back to the American people. This needs to go to the voter in what do you 2022. Mean by this? Tell me about this. How does, well, we, how does what goes back to the voter here? I would love to be able to vote on this. Well, I think the idea of do we actually have a a conversation about spending debt and deficit? A you know, do we have a responsible 2022 election with meaty policy debates about the future of the debt and deficit, or is it? fall back into the, uh, you know, the Trump era personality politics. And, you know, frankly, when we focus on the, the politicians malarkey, we miss the actual uh, mortgaging of our future, the, the, the problems that we're not confronting. And could that be part of next year's discussion? You know, one question for the Democrats and the, the urgency they see is that they need to get some of these programs tax credits, assistance that they want to put. They want that rolled out by the election so that people feel the benefits of it, um, yeah. you know, similar to the, the model with Obamacare, where it, it was unpopular until people actually started to use it. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's what they see as being important for these, these programs to be in place by 2022. But then at the same time, where's the debate over how we pay for them, how we pay and, for and, any of it. And ultimately, you know, the the economist had a very interesting piece this week. Uh, America can't pay, at least for the 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 kind of scope that voters of all stripes, conservative Republicans and Democrats want Medicare. They want larger Medicaid. They're the the bigger government is popular now throughout the voting public. 
and how you pay for that. The, the economist was talking about the U.S. having a VAT and that we need to finally get real about that. It, it could absolutely happen, but somehow we have to think about how we're going to pay for all these things that we want. As a child, I wanted a pony. I really very badly wanted a pony. It amused my parents to no end, um, as it does lots of parents when children their children want a pony. My, we used to hear stories, by the way, my grandmother, who was born in 1893, uh, you think I'm old? Huh. She was born in 1893, and she had a pony as a child because they had horses because they didn't have cars. Right. And uh, they needed ponies and horses, and she had a pony named Deary. And Deary, we heard stories about Deary. Deary would stick its head through the window because they had screens and they didn't have air conditioning. And uh, Deary would come every afternoon and stick her head through the window for a carrot. And we'd hear these stories as children. And all we wanted, of course, was our own pony that would stick its head through the window and we could give it a carrot. It was wonderful. You've got to pay for some of this stuff sooner or later, folks. Yeah, we want lots of things. How are we going to pay for them? And there are no plans for that other than, well, we'll borrow the money. And if interest rates stay low enough, we don't have to worry about it. I want to move to three more things. And we've got about three minutes tops, maybe two and a half. Uh, Dan. Jay Powell in trouble or no? Uh, I think he gets through, but it, it is it is dodgy with the insider trading. That is not a good narrative to be facing right now. They're gone, right? The those yeah. who were responsible are gone. Is but that it's, you know the buck stops with him? It's under his watch narrative. Uh, look, it's it's a headwind. It ultimately comes down to whether Biden wants to get him across the finish line. I think. Let's go to President Biden then. And what's yes. going to suit him best? Because his what did I see? His approval rating was 38 percent. Did I see that? Yeah. Look, I think you've you've seen the, the difficulties with moderates. I I think what is really flashing red and this is what actually keeps if we're going to skip ahead to what keeps me up at night, the supply chain issues that the White House is starting to see in terms of ports, shipping, logistics for the holidays, the idea of a Christmas with bare shelves uh, disruptions, things like that, that is something that they're very worried about. And it's this sense of, is Biden able to turn the corner on the COVID, the pandemic, the the disruption to our lives that we've had since early 2020? I think that's the fundamental crux of his popularity, whether so, or not we're getting back to normalcy. So without all of those things that Americans love during the holiday season and at Christmas, if you start limiting the number of presents, presents under the tree, Mr. President, you just took a shot at Santa Claus. And let me tell you, I'm no political expert, but that's not going to play well for you and your ratings can't afford that. Right. And therefore his gunpowder, what his influence will be going into 2022 is severely diminished. If he is severely diminished, what does he do about Jay Powell? Does he placate? Yes. Or does so he where stick do you use do you use that do you use that political capital on Jay Powell, considering you need to keep progressives happier with a with a lower number, perhaps on the reconciliation deal? What's that's the right. the how Jay Powell fits in the horse trading is a I'll even admit that's just that's ultimately between the the president and his closest advisors right now. Right. Well, there's a lot to negotiate with President Biden right now. Uh, does he have a saving grace from the diminishment of variant D? Are we back to all things virus as we try and judge popularity, as we look to the markets and the economy and everything else? Variant D seems to have peaked uh, and people seem to be recovering. Uh, are we, is, will that moving past help the president sufficient to restore his approval rating? I think it helps. I also think that a, a smooth rollout to a booster program, uh, you know, looks, you know, good. It, it shows action. Um, ultimately, uh, any epidemiologist will tell you it's just a matter of was what we saw during the summer the same thing as where you had a, you know, we had a southern wave with weaker variants in 2020 during the same summer. Do we see that same kind of spike in the northern states once people go back and congregate indoors uh, in the coming months? That's that's a question mark. But again, vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. And you you don't have that uh, as much of a concern. Finally, Dan, and we are way past time. I'm sorry here, folks. But uh, the infrastructure package, 
the one trillion dollar infrastructure package that everybody seems to agree on. I, I just want to be clear. FAR supports that one. FAR supports that one. I think we can really use that. I think we need it. And I think we see a return on investment. I think that one actually pays for itself, plus a multiplier. OK, uh, new bridges, new roads. Uh, we get uh, probably some better Internet service and 5G and everything else. Uh, I think that there is much there's a great demand. Uh, we've got bridges in this country that you, we can't use because they're getting ready to collapse. That has to be restored and commerce will improve as a result. Beyond that, the second bill, I don't see much that recommends the second bill at all, largely because we can't afford it. I love, look, I, I, I am very charitable. I'm very philanthropic. I, I, will, I give money to lots of different causes that help people, but we've got to be able to afford it. Uh, if, if I become, if I give away everything that I have and end up on the dole myself, you're going to suggest I'm a horse's ass. And you'd be right. And you'd be right if I become part of the problem. So I've got to do what I do responsibly. We have to do that as a country, too. And just that we're going to create more bonds and more debt and leave it to future generations is the wrong answer. Wrong answer, folks. There's far as opinion. You want to agree or disagree quickly, Dan? We got to go. I think I think you're right on that. Uh, ultimately, the question becomes, uh, with what you described on the second bill, it could be totally paid for, but you just have to ask what are the costs of paying for that in terms of the tax increases and those details. That's what they're finally getting to, and I think that's what Mansion may insist is that it's paid for, but we have to ask ourselves, you know, the costs. Are we willing to shoulder those new taxes uh, and new costs? They're going to try and keep them from the middle class, but it's a, uh, the devil's in the details. Devil's in the details. Are we willing to take on the extra costs of the extra programs? I think we ought to figure out how we're going to pay for the extra costs of the already huge, enormous debt that we've got on right now. We've got basically 150% debt to GDP right now in real numbers. Uh, I'm, I'm really not being inflammatory there, folks. We're going to come right back with Liz Young, Dan Mahaffey from the Center of the Study of the Presidency and Congress and the senior political analyst on the Farcast. Thank you, pal. We're going to be back. Please stay with us on the Farcast. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of the Farcast. Join us next week as Michael welcomes Kenny Polcari, Dan Mahaffey, and from Wells Fargo Investments, Dr. Jay Bryson. Now, for this week's special guest, Liz Young, and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Terrific edition this morning with Jim Urio in, in segment one. And what a treat. Just heard also from Dan Mahaffey in segment two. Really good insights from Dan as to what's going on in Washington. And of course, what's not going on in Washington. Very, very frustrating as they kick the can down the road. Jim Urio talked to us about his perspective as a trader, how he gets in and gets out of the market, how he has a position that he'll take on with stops in place as to when to get out, doesn't start a position without an exit, very different from his own long-term personal investment strategy. Farmiller in Washington, we're long-term investors. I'm a long-term investor. Our turnover at Farmiller is 15% a year. So that's really, really low. Uh, we run concentrated portfolios, and I own these myself. And so these, while we get emotional, certainly we feel these markets up and downs. We've trained ourselves not to do anything about them. That's hard to do, as Jim pointed out. One of the best people you can talk to on Wall Street when it comes to investing and market strategy. Joining me now, Liz Young, who is head of investment strategy at SoFi. And she is one of the brightest shining stars on Wall Street's sky. You see her, you've seen her on CNBC and all other types of media. Uh, one of the, I think, most thoughtful voices on Wall Street today. Welcome back, Liz. I'm happy to be here. Hi, Michael. We're very happy to have you. You, you heard my introduction, Liz, where Jim was talking about establishing trading positions as we get barraged with all of this noise domestically from Washington, from around the world, from the Federal Reserve to the Treasury Department, what's happening in China, what's not happening. What do you make of it? How does this affect your market strategy? And tell us what you think of markets now. 
Sure. Well, I'll start with saying that there is a ton of information out there. There is a ton of noise, as you mentioned. And it sounds like Jim was referencing something that I would just call a sell discipline, which is what every investor should have in place. And that sell discipline can be different depending on what your goals are, depending on what your time horizon is. But what it does to have a sell discipline is to force you to make a decision and force you to stay honest with yourself about the positions that you're in. So amidst all the noise, amidst all the chaos that's going on, if you have some kind of trigger, whether that's a stop, whether that's some sort of you know, amount that's dropped from a recent peak, it forces you to sit back and say, okay, but is my thesis still intact? And if you can explore and decide whether or not the reason you bought that position or entered that position is still intact, if the answer is yes, then you don't get out just because we're going through some bumps that are macro related, right? Because the position is probably still a sound decision. So that's Washington, something that I think is really important to think about. It's very important to think about. And as you think about the current noise, Liz, Washington really doesn't create price. Washington doesn't create value. Washington creates a lot of wind that can buffet you, you negative, one of the very few negative uses of the word Buffett, uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Mr. Buffett, sorry, sorry. But, uh, and it's better, I think it does beat buffet, doesn't it? Maybe that's one of the positive uses of it. Depends but who you it, ask. It, 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 well, it does indeed. Buffett you around, uh, but it doesn't shake out value unless they change things dramatically. Wall Street has a way of pricing things in short term and long term. I loved what you said about forcing you to stay honest, to be honest with yourself. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I think this could be very helpful to investors. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? it? It is a hard thing to do. And you can get really distracted with the psychology of it and the emotion of it. And the emotion yeah. can happen both on the positive side and on the negative side. So you can get sort of married to your positions, right? You can fall in love with a position that you have. And then you're not being honest with yourself if there's negative developments going on and you should actually exit the position, right? So your thesis is broken. You can also not be honest with yourself on the negative side. And what you have to do as an investor is take some of the noise that's coming in with a grain of salt, right? Because right. there's always going to be noise that occurs. A lot of it right now, unfortunately, is coming out of Washington. One of the negative effects of that is that it's typically a lot of macroeconomic noise. And when markets are being driven by macroeconomic factors, correlations tend to rise. And what I mean by that is when things are driven by macro, a lot of asset classes tend to move in the same direction at the same time. That's so you can't really get out of the way, right? Which means that what you should do is not do anything until that period passes. Unless of course you think a recession is coming, which I do not think is happening. Well, and we've been through those too. I mean, they are a part of the normal investment cycle. Uh, and, and boy, if you've ever tried to uh, time the market and had a hard time with that, try it timing uh, the economic cycle or try it timing the next recession. But I, I think, you know, one of my favorite lines is economists have uh, successfully uh, predicted uh, something like uh, three of the last 14 recessions. Yeah. Um, it, it, I've, they, I've heard it a different way. I've heard it. Uh, they've they've successfully predicted nine of the last five. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so they're, they're always it, they're always warning against it, right? It, of course, one is going to come again, right? We will yeah. at some point have another recession. It will shortly thereafter be followed by a recovery. That's just how this works. It's how it works. Or that we will be at that one time when the world ends. Uh, right. And if it if it indeed ends, then none of this will matter anyway. So right. you're you, you got nothing to worry about one way, one way right. or the other. The world, the, as far as I can tell, the world's ended at least four times in my lifetime, uh, and we're still, yes. we're all still here. We're all still investing, and and we carry on. John Whitmore was uh, basically the the founder of Bessemer Trust, who took the Phipps family office to the public. He opened it up. John Whitmore, one of the wisest, I think, uh, real fathers of. Uh, parents of, of, of Wall Street and modern investing. And John told me any number of times in his wonderful sonorous voice, he had this big, heavy voice, which just made clients calm down when you heard him talk. You know, it was one of those great grandfather voices. And he'd say, you know, I, the, I have listened to several predictions of the imminent end of the world. And so far, most have fallen a bit short. <laughs> I think this one probably will too. You know, it was just such a great line. I loved it. I've quoted him so many times over the years. Anyway, Liz, uh, as 
clients and as investors now are seeing the market go up 300 points one day and down 300 points the next day and the 10-year treasury go up and back, does that affect your investments? It certainly increases the emotion. How has it changed your strategy or feeling about the market? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a term for it. It's called whipsaw, and, and that's what we're going through right now. I also think that you go through periods of market whipsaw when the market is transitioning, or at least trying to transition. We went through this a little bit in late spring, so about that May, early June period where we had volatility, and then the market transitioned, and tech won throughout the summer. I think we're going through a reverse transition back to what we'll probably see is what won in the beginning of the year. And we're obviously entering a period where we're going to hear from the Fed that they're going to start tapering, likely in November. Maybe we hear about it in November. It starts in November or December. So that changes the regime. It changes the environment that we're in. And the market is trying to figure out what's the right path forward then? What are, what are the parts of the market that are supposed to win in that? What are the parts that are attractively priced for that period? I think, however, you know, we talk about the Fed so much and we talk about their policy so much we're ready for the taper. I, in my world, I'm just like, get it over with already. Can we please right. just push the button and let's go, right? I'm sick of hearing about it. I think we're prepared for that. What I'm not sure we're prepared for, which is what I think the market is trying to figure out, is we're expecting the taper to be systematic, meaning it'll be the exact same amount every month until it's over. Yep. I don't know that that's going to be the case. I think that they might have to speed it up at some point in 2022, if inflation stays where it is. And the reason I say that is because they, they want to avoid at all costs raising rates, right? But at some point they might have to do something to control inflation or at least put a lid on inflation. And the way that they could do that is to speed up the taper slightly and see if it works. So they might have to increase the amount uh, of tapering per month as we get into the early part of next year. I don't know that the market is ready to hear something like that, right? It would change the trajectory and we might have a little adjustment at that point. I think we find out then, Liz, whether the Fed means the transitory or not, whether they believe it or not. They've said that they've used this word transitory often, consistently, and now they're saying, wait a minute, inflation's a little hotter and might last a little longer. But I haven't seen them actually do away with the word transitory. And, and when you look at the population growth, when you look at that, that measure of GDP that says how many workers plus productivity will get me GDP growth, longer term, it's very hard to get away from that 2% number, right? From productivity growth at maybe a more trend line at 1.5% if, if, if you're good and maybe a little more. It's picked up recently, but that'll come back down too. And then population growth, maybe three-tenths, four-tenths, depending on immigration, really depending on immigration. So maybe that's the big transition. I, I wonder, uh, I, I really wonder if they have, if the Fed has guts. Um, and I think that's what we're going to see here. And uh, where Jay Powell thinks he needs to position himself to get reappointed. I don't, people in Washington yeah, like the, to get reappointed. They, <laughs> they really <laughs> they like do. to keep they, their jobs. Yeah. They like yeah. their jobs. So look, I think the Fed has a really, really tough job. And I do not envy the position of Jerome Powell or any of the other voting members. I think that they are stuck in, in a really tough spot at this point. Um, to your point, though, about productivity and, and what's the long run real rate of growth, even the Fed themselves predicts the long run rate of growth to be somewhere around 2%. So that's, that's where we probably settle back into. There's one more component to that equation, and that's technology. Yes. And really, the only way for growth to to continue on exponentially is by advancement in technology. And I would say we're checking that box pretty well. So if technology continues to build productivity and continues to make the existing workforce and the existing population more productive without having to add more people, we'll be okay, right? And over time, that should also bring down the rate of inflation as obviously technology pushes down the cost of things over the long run. Yeah. Now. When we think about the rate of inflation and the, the transitory nature, you're right that they haven't stopped using the word transitory. I think that originally we tried to define the word transitory as an exact period of time. So we wanted the Fed to come to us and say, okay, transitory means that inflation is going to be high for three and a half months, right? right? And we wanted to, 
we wanted to mark that day on the calendar when it was going to end and say, okay, it's over. Transitory is done. And now we keep saying, well, it's a moving target. What does transitory mean? Two months or two years, two quarters? What does it mean? I think what it means is that the inflation issue fixes itself. I think that that's what they mean by transitory, meaning that they don't have to intervene in order for inflation to start coming back down, that some of that supply and demand dynamic will over time fix itself. Where do you see interest rates going in order for it to fix itself? You mean like the 10-year yield or the yeah. Fed funds yeah. rate? Uh, let's go with 10-year yield. Okay, so we're sitting right now at what, 154-ish at the yes. time of this recording. Um, I think that towards the end of the year, we can get up to 175 and, and stocks would be fine with that. I tend to agree with the statement, uh, I believe it was made yesterday by somebody from JP Morgan about uh, stocks being able to handle somewhere in that two and a half percent range. I would agree with that. I think at some point in 2022, we can probably get above two, up to two and a half, and stocks would slowly be able to continue to grind higher, right? Um, you think the tech sector too, uh, or is this part of your notion that we're going to see a rotation out of the NASDAQ and tech? Well, I think we're already seeing that rotation, right? So that rotation is, is occurring and, and we have to remember the market is a forward-looking mechanism. So the rotation will occur before the actual event occurs. So we're seeing that rotation now. Um, it's about the speed of the rise in rates. So if rates rise gradually, as they should, and if they rise for the right reasons, meaning the economy is expanding and we no longer need emergency rate situations, then right. yes, I still think tech has some upside. It's not something that I would run for the hills on. It's a matter of not only the speed, but then it's, you know, when, when we get asked by investors, where are the opportunities? Really what they're asking is where are the relative opportunities? Nobody's yes. asking me if they should or should not be in equities. I mean, the answer to that is yes, you should be in equities, right? Right. They're asking, where's the better opportunity in equities? So then the answer becomes, okay, do I see more upside in tech or in cyclicals? And the answer is I see more upside in cyclicals. Um, you don't think this is another head fake? I mean, we did this in the spring too, where the NASDAQ and the tech stock started to trade off and then we hit another period. You think this is the real one? I think that this one could last because we are entering a different economic regime and the Fed is going to finally adjust policy. There was no adjustment in policy in spring. It was just a statement of a possible adjustment in policy later in the year, but we were going to keep talking about it. So now we've hit the point where the adjustment will probably occur in the fourth quarter and that'll make the rotation stick. So finally, your, your final word uh, here, Liz, if I could get a couple of predictions out of you. Uh, by year end, where do you think stocks close relative to, to, to today? Uh, and what do you think about 2022 as a year for stocks? Well, I I'm not going to make an exact prediction on where I think the S&P will be because that's just a, a quick way to make me be wrong. Uh, <laughs> but I will say, I think we have a little more downside through October. And okay. then November and December are likely strong. So strong though, meaning let's say 5% total okay. between November okay. and December. Uh, I think the holiday shopping season is going to be healthy, meaning people will want to spend, but they might be handicapped on that spending because of supply chain issues. So there's still going to be yes. some frustration in that. But I think the holiday season will be healthy. What we're up against is that in October, not only do we have these macro headwinds, but we also have earnings season that'll start to heat up again. And we've already started to get some signals from companies that they're having trouble uh, in their earnings and they've had to adjust down their guidance because of supply chain issues or because of labor shortages. So that's starting to really come out in the numbers now. And I think that earnings data that we're gonna get in the fourth quarter for the third quarter is gonna be slightly disappointing. So. What that means is let's shake it all out, right? Let's get through the rest of the year. We start 2022, and I think 2022 ends up being a more normal year for stocks, which means okay. that we should expect something in the normal range. Let's call that, I'll even be optimistic and say somewhere between 7 and 10% on the S&P. Okay. 7 and 10% for the S&P. And boy, uh, wouldn't we all take that, folks? I mean, here we are up 16, 17% for the year here today. And if we... Liz hedged herself there, of course, we could give back a little bit in the next month or so and then rise four or 5%. So we could end 
maybe three or 4% higher than we are today by the end of the year, uh, possibly, and then another 10% on top of that. The power of compounding works in the favor of investors who stay the course and are not shaken out by emotion and stay true to their discipline. And as you say, as Liz Young says, forced to stay honest with themselves. That is the key. Liz Young is a CFA. She is head of investment strategy at SoFi. She's responsible uh, for developing uh, the economic and markets insights. And as you can tell, one of the brightest, wisest, most thoughtful people on Wall Street. Thank you so much for being with us on the Farcast. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another week on the Farcast. October the 7th, we will be with you through all of this noise from Wall Street, Washington, and the world in Washington, D.C. for the Farcast. And as my, in my new role as chief market strategist for Hightower Advisors, I am Michael Farr. We'll see you next week. We appreciate you listening in to this week's edition of the Farcast. And thanks to Michael's guests, Jim Urio, Dan Mahaffey, and from SoFi Investments, Liz Young. We love hearing from you every week, and we try to respond to all of your notes and suggestions. You can reach us at hjennings at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. Would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Farm Miller and Washington or Hightower Advisors, are not necessarily those of Farm Miller and Washington, Hightower Advisors, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Bar Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help. And I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Please share the podcast with friends and colleagues as we continue on with Season 5 next week. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast, Wall Street, Washington, and the world.